Now we are going to do something extremely fun. We're going to play a wonderful game called Who is my daddy and what does he do? My competitor is today my co-founder, Christian van der Hens. We were bigger than any U.S. website regarding Flash or web design. We ended up going to Miami because Christian wanted to open the company in Miami. That was my first mistake. We, you should not open a company in Miami <laughs> in general. I also remember that every time that we got into this argument and I was really on the edge of winning, he would always try to remind everybody that his company was bigger than mine. <laughs> My name is Freddy Vega. I am the CEO and co-founder of Platzi. I am 32 years old. I'm originally from Bogota in Colombia, where I am right now. My company, Platzi, is located in San Francisco, in California. We also have offices in Mexico City and in Bogota. And we are opening this year offices in Brazil and in Spain. At Platzi, we do effective online education, which means that we do the kind of online courses that will get people a better job, a better career, or will enable them to create their own tech company after they study with us. We focus mostly on developing markets, which means that most of our courses are in Spanish and Portuguese. But we also have some courses in English. You told us about Platzi. If someone's trying to figure out how that's spelled, as P-L-A-T-Z-I, right? Yeah, that's right. And how do you come up with the name of the company? In the past, when we started the company, we had a Spanish name. We were called Mejorando.LA, like improving it, but in Spanish. And the issue with that is that you will only be able to do courses in Spanish. And even in Spanish, it sounded okay in Latin American Spanish, but it didn't sound that well for Spain. When we entered Y Combinator, we were the first company to have a Latin American market to get into YC in winter 2015. And there, there's a very strong like guidance to get a .com, which is, by the way, the right thing to do. If you can get a .com domain, you should. We wanted a .com, and I checked all the .com available. So we created kind of two stories, one which is the official story that we tell people, and normally they're okay with it, and the other one is the truth. The official story tends to be that Platz is place in German, and the I stands for the internet. So Platzi is the place where you go to learn about the internet, your professional home where you go back often to improve your skills and improve your career. And that works normally. But the truth is that we tried something like 5,000 combinations of dot-coms and Platzi was one of those that were, because I didn't want to pay for the dot-com. I wanted a dot-com that I paid less than $20. We got three of them and we did a small voting inside the company and Platzi ended up winning. And I think that's smart when you start off that way. Did you start off with any funding or anything before you even got into Y Combinator? No, not at all, because we started in Latin America. In Latin America, especially back then, 2013, when we started, the financial ecosystem is heavily biased towards real estate, and they do not understand anything regarding tech companies, and they only have so much money. And we didn't have any track record besides our former companies, but we didn't have any venture-backed track record. And I really didn't want to get into an accelerator or stuff like that. I just wanted to create the best possible online education experience. So we designed the company in a way that we were able to start this idea without getting external funds. The way that we did it is that we did courses on site, physical courses that we were doing in hotels, in universities, in meeting rooms. We just got whatever we could in different cities. 
and we ended up going to 20 cities in 12 different countries, teaching 1,500 people about things like marketing, HTML5, which back then was super popular. And they were very small courses, like two-day courses, and we were charging $100, $200 per course, depending on the country. And with the revenue that we got from those courses, we invested 100% of it into developing the software platform that we ended up launching. So no funding at all. Even to this day, for most of the company's history, we have been profitable, which I think it's very important when you're doing things in emerging markets. And so you started this early 2013? Yeah, we launched the beta version in early 2013, but the actual business model that we use to this day was launched in January of 2014. And you're still a young guy. Why don't you tell us? Thank about, you for that. Yeah. Well, I got to say that because you're about my age. Why don't you tell us about going to school and then kind of starting out from there, how you started Plotsy? And then we'll just dive more in depth, if you don't mind, kind of year by year growth of Plotsy and what you learned so the people listening can build their companies too. Of course. When I was 17, I created my first company on the internet. It was a company called crystallab.com. And it wasn't really a company. I didn't want to create a company. What I wanted to do was to make a community of web designers. Back then, there was this tool that used to be extremely popular, Flash. A lot of people used it. I loved it. There were no online communities about Flash in Spanish. So I decided to create one. And then we grew into more things. We grew into talking about Photoshop, talking about HTML, web development, web design. And I found out that I had a big competitor. My company was called Crystalab. Our business model was AdSense, basically. We were doing ads. I was 17, so to me, that was amazing. And that was my first year of college as well. And my biggest competitor was some guy that I thought was from Spain. Eventually, I found out he was from Guatemala. His website was called Maestros del Web. They were really big. They were like three times bigger than us. At our peak, we had 4 million unique visitors per month. And at their peak, they had 10 million unique visitors per month. Back then, that was amazing because AdSense worked really well. The advertising industry online was taking off after the dot-com crash. Everything was amazing. This was 2004. My competitor is today my co-founder, Christian van der Hens. We stopped being competitors when the next economical crisis hit. In 2008, not a lot happened in Spain and Latin America, but the shockwave of all the financial crisis of 2008 touch Spain and Latin America around 2010. Then, almost overnight, most of the money that we were getting from AdSense was cut by 70%. So we knew that we couldn't just justify a business model based on advertising anymore. And that these kind of communities were kind of dying because at the same time, Twitter was taking off, Facebook was taking off, and they were taking most of the social experience of the community, which was the biggest value that we were providing. So we wanted to do something different and we tried different ideas on our own, but we kept being friends because even though we were competitors, we met a lot in different events, events in Miami, in San Francisco, in Spain, in Latin America. And at one of these events, we decided to start doing small things together, especially courses, because I used to be a teacher at the university at the same time that I was just learning. I couldn't teach a formal degree because I didn't have a degree but I could teach specialized things. I remember that I was the first teacher of e-commerce at a university here in Colombia. And Christian worked with the Ministry of Education in Guatemala. So we both had this huge passion for education. And that's how everything started. And that was 2008, kind of when y'all joined together? 
No, no, no. This was 2011 when we started joining. 2010 was when we saw that we needed to do something different. And in 2011, we started collaborating with the courses. Okay. But you're saying 2008 is kind of when both y'all, you were doing well financially, it sounded like, but you're saying your revenue got cut by like 70% thanks to the financial yeah. crisis. Yep, yep, yep. And just to keep it straight, so you were in Columbia the whole time too, and your co-founder, were y'all both located the same spot? I know you said you thought he was located somewhere in Spain and then he was actually in Columbia, right? Yeah, he was taking a master's degree in Spain, Okay. but both of our companies were remote because we had people from all over the world. The highest point of Crystal Lab, my former company, we were bigger than the official forums of Macromedia and Adobe. We were bigger than any US website regarding Flash or web design. Even though we were bigger in terms of traffic, you get paid more if your content is in English than if your content is in Spanish. This is mostly true of almost anything regarding content so we both were remote. We both had people that were all around the world. And we both talk a lot about what we thought of the future of education should be. The issue with education, especially online education, is that even though people start, they don't really finish. And rarely they get an outcome out of it. Rarely, if you study something online, you will really advance your career or change your life in a meaningful way. But it's totally possible. It just depends on the way that you do it. And that was like the biggest idea that we had. And you said you were 17 when you kind of started this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how much money were you making at your height with your first company? Not a lot. Me personally, I remember that for like three months, I had a $10,000 salary per month, which was mind blowing. This was in 2007, 2008. But it was like for three months. I remember good things of it. I remember that I went on a tour around the U.S. because I have never been to the whole country before. I've been to Miami several times. So that was amazing to go around. Uh, I remember that I tried to go to Europe, but my visa was denied. Because back then, Colombians had a very bad reputation for other countries. So I wasn't able to go to Europe. Now we don't need a visa to go to Europe. But I also remember that I only was able to have Three employees at Crystal Lab at the peak of the company when we were the biggest. It was a small company. It's just that I was very young and I had a very unique perspective on how to think. What we had was a lot of traffic. That was really good. But I never wanted to become an advertising company, which is what you need to do when you are a content company. Well, don't you think, isn't it kind of ironic that you dropped out of school and now you're into education again? Kind of, but not really, because part of the reason why I dropped out is because I never thought that I was going to get my time's worth when I was going to college. Well, that's good that you noticed that, too, because I think a lot of people, even at your age, probably wouldn't notice that they just stick it out, right? But you realize, hey, you don't think you're actually going to use some of this information? Yeah, that's exactly it. What I was thinking was the time that I'm spending here is really high. And I was in the most prestigious university in Colombia, the National University of Colombia, which is really good. But I already knew a lot of what they were teaching me because the way that I made my company required me to learn all these things and some other things. So to me, it made a lot of sense that I would rather spend the time that I'm spending here building something that is mine versus just doing these projects and going to class, etc. And for a long time, it haunted me. For a long time, I thought, did I make the wrong choice? Should I go back to school? Should I get the degree? But seeing how the time that I was putting in and the people that we were touching, the employees that we had, the students that we ended up having. So I think that actually, instead of ironic, it's extremely correlated to our experience. What I want to build with Platzi is pretty similar to what I felt when I was going to college. I want to build something that actually is worth people's time and that gets them faster to where they want to be in terms of professional skills. 
Ready to get your business idea online? Well, that's where our sponsor, HostGator, can help. So how much does it cost? Well, you can launch your brand new website on HostGator for as little as $2.64 a month. That's a 62.01% discount they're providing our listeners with, and it's the best deal on hosting anywhere. If you don't believe me, then do some of your own Googling. If you find a better deal out there, then feel free to email me because I haven't been able to find one. As an entrepreneur, I'm always looking for the best value. That's why I've used HostGator to run my personal websites since 2013. Do you need another reason to choose HostGator? Well, here's two more for you. They have a 99% uptime guarantee and they also have world-class customer support available 24-7, 365. Again, I can vouch for this as I've called them at 3 a.m. for help with my website and I had a customer support rep on the phone within minutes. So if you're looking to get the best deal on the best hosting provider in the world, then visit our link, hostgator.com forward slash YOLO. That's Y-O-L-O. Again, to receive that 62.01% discount on your new website, go to hostgator.com forward slash YOLO or visit the link in your episode description below. Well, no, that's cool. And that's a great experience that you kind of understood that because it just wasn't worth the money at the time. And if you already knew all that information, then I would probably feel the same way that you're almost taking a step back when you were going to class because you already knew all that, right? Okay, we're talking about you met your co-founder and he was your competitor, which is kind of weird because I don't think many of us could envision that happening, but y'all just really got along or what else drew y'all together to kind of form Plotsy? That's interesting. We met at a lot of events. People love to invite us both because we kind of fight between each other publicly, <laughs> right. not in a mean way, right. but we kind of fought publicly and some people liked that as a show. This was actually really good back then because our brands were growing because of each other which is, I think, what rappers do in retrospective, <laughs> but obviously extremely planned. In our case, it wasn't that planned. It's just that we knew that the other person had something that, for example, I knew that Christian had things that I didn't have. Like, for example, he had experience building companies. He had a background in business, even though he's very technical. And also things that we had in common, like we build these communities. We had a lot of passion for the people that are building the future of technology and the web and mobile applications and everything else. We both were kind of respected in terms of the events that we went to. But the most important thing is that we knew that what we were doing had an impact because we could see it in our communities and we were interested in making that impact grow. So even though we had different approaches to it, we shared a lot of common values. So we started after these events talking more and more and more. And I remember that at one time, Christian decided to go to live in Japan for like three months and asked me to join him for a while because I really wanted to go to Japan. And it was going to be a little bit easier because he was already there. I did that. And it was in Japan in the month that I went where we kind of started talking seriously about how a business model will work and how a better online education system could look like. And that's when we decided to just stop competing. What would you be arguing about? You say when you're putting on, quote, unquote, maybe a show when y'all were on stage, right? Ah, talking against each other? Yeah. Was it visions of the future of the Internet or what? What we're talking about? Sometimes it was really silly things, like how he looked like and things like that. But most <laughs> of the times, yeah, yeah, it was super silly. But most of the times was something a little bit more strong. For example, Christian loved to be very diplomatic. He was always saying like, what do you think of this technology? Oh, I think that this technology has a lot of potential, etc." And I always try to call him on that. Like, I think that's bullshit. I think you know that that technology has no future, but you don't want to piss anybody off. And then I will try to push him to admit 
of a strong opinion because he was always extremely diplomatic and I was always subversive in my former company. Now I've learned to be more diplomatic. It's not that good to be subversive all the time, but I feel like that subversion is extremely important for a founder because if you don't have an opinion, you don't have a vision and then you don't have a voice to where you want to go. And eventually I think that we both balance each other. I also remember that every time that we got into this argument and I was really on the edge of winning, he will always try to remind everybody that his company was bigger than mine. <laughs> like your 100,000 registered users versus my million registered users, stuff like that. It wasn't never that big of a gap. It was like 60%. That's something I always did. We still do to this day because we do a show every Thursday, a live show. It's like a talk show. Imagine last week tonight or things like that in Spanish talking about technology, live stream with video and everything else. And sometimes we get into arguments with each other, which is kind of fun. You went to Japan and then that's kind of where y'all bonded a little bit more about like, hey, we can probably really do a company together. Yeah. No, that we had ideas in common. And because of these ideas that we had in common, I think that we found a common ground on how to execute. And also I think that Christian respected my technical perspective. And I really respected that he knew the whole process on how to create a company. What kind of conversations would you have in case we have a friend or we're debating about getting a co-founder right before we even start a company? What conversations were you having with him to decide, hey, if we can work together and make this happen? A lot of this is in retrospective because it was very organic. Right. But I think that in retrospective, I had a lot of doubts because I have always been on my own. I really enjoyed being on my own, doing whatever I wanted which is kind of ironic to this day because now we have venture capital, institutional investors, board meeting, employees, co-founder structure, etc. But back then, I really wanted to do whatever I wanted. But at the same time, I knew that I lacked things and that having someone else sharing responsibility and sharing an objective will be a natural motivator to push me harder than I've been. So I was looking for something like that, I think. Also something that I really believe is that if you're going to have a co-founder, you should have absolute total trust in that person. That the trust has to be almost blind because otherwise it's going to be almost impossible to create a company. So many things can go wrong. So many horrible situations can happen. So many things you need to attend on a daily basis that you cannot deal with a cognitive overload of overseeing whatever your co-founder is doing. You just need to trust and believe that that's the right thing. And if they make a mistake, there has to be a common understanding that that mistake was well-intentioned, even if it's an, an impressive mistake. Because there's a totally different world between a mistake that was well-intended versus a mistake that could be a crime or that could be embezzlement or stuff like that, terrible stuff. So I wanted to be sure that I could trust him completely. And I think that I did a lot of small, almost unconscious tests to see if this could work. And at the end of the day, I remember being kind of scared when we signed the agreement to be 50-50 to start the company. But more than scared, I was excited because I knew this is different than what I've been doing so far, and this will take us higher. And did you sign that contract when you were in Japan? No, no, no. We ended up going to Miami because Christian wanted to open the company in Miami. That was my first mistake, which you should not <laughs> open a company in Miami in general. In paper, it sounds really good. If you're going to operate in Latin America, you should do the company in Miami because Latin America is not connected to each other. We're not a single market. We are like 20 different markets. And the only country that Latin American countries are connected to is the U.S. And the closest big city to Latin America tends to be Miami. So go and open there. And Florida has, in quotes, good competitive tax codes compared to other places. 
the truth is that even though that may be true, Florida is kind of weird in certain aspects. And investors don't really know about Florida when you compare it to the standard Silicon Valley company, which is Delaware. I think it's the standard company in the US in general. So Delaware is way easier, way better, and you don't have to redo documents that you actually have to redo if you have a company anywhere else but Delaware. But we started in Miami and that was good. Like that was the MVP of the financial structure. I remember that we signed with this lawyer that used to be a ministry in Uruguay. Very charismatic guy whose job is to open corporations for Latin American people in Miami. We did that after Japan. And a very fun fact, after Japan, I arrived to Colombia totally broke. I had no money. I spent it all. Because something that I didn't tell Christian is that Crystal Lab, my company, was hit way harder than his company because of the financial crisis and companies cutting advertising budgets. So I only had my savings and I wasn't as responsible as I am right now. So I didn't have a lot of money. I think I was in negative numbers when I went back to the US after going to Japan. When we opened the company in Miami, I put the last of my savings, $2,000. So I was really hopeful that the thing was going to work. What day and date was that? Was it an LLC in Miami? Yeah, yeah. This was like June 2011, something like that. June or July of 2011. Eventually, we morphed it in 2014 into the Delaware C Corp. Into what? Delaware C Corp. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we converted it. What you were saying earlier is better to have it start in Delaware. So that's at least one tip for everybody. If you're going to make a yeah. U.S. company, you're saying start it off in a Delaware corporation versus a Florida because you don't have to live in the actual state to open it up in that state in Delaware. Exactly. And nowadays it's really easy. Back then we had to fake or hack a lot of things to make it look like we were living there. Like we have a PO box that we had to pay. We had someone that was a friend of ours in common that lived in Florida that was like the actual person living there that represented the company, even though he didn't have any idea of whatever. Everything legal, but everything kind of odd in terms of how to start a company. The reason for this is that we really wanted to use Stripe. Stripe is definitely the best payment processor in the world. There was nothing like that in Latin America. The closest is PayU, and it's not that close when you try to have clients from everywhere in the world. So we really wanted to use Stripe, and the only way to do that was to create a company in the U.S. Today... And one second, before we start talking about that Stripe, if you don't mind, because I've got that down for our notes. This is kind of a bigger story that I definitely wanted to hit on. (laughs) Of course. But even before that, let's just talk about... So you had no money when you were starting off this company. Do you know how much money Christian had? I think that he didn't have a lot. I think that for him, putting the $1,000 that he put down to start the company was hard, but it wasn't as hard as it was for me. However, I never thought of it this way. He didn't know that this was going to be hard for me or that it was going to put me in a financial complex situation. And he didn't have to know. The one thing that I wanted from him is the same thing that I wanted to do myself, which was commit completely to the idea and to the success of this structure. And thankfully, I think I got that. So together, you both put had uh, $4,000, you said, basically to start this company? Yeah. And what'd you do with it right there in the beginning? Were y'all both staying in the U.S. for a little bit of time? I just want to know the kind of the early days, especially if you basically have no money, what life was like, like what you're doing before we get on to some of these good stories you're about to tell me about. Of course. So we knew that we needed something like $10,000 to start developing the software platform that we envisioned to start doing the courses online. By the way, that was an absolute lie. It ended (laughs) up being like $100,000 to even launch but we knew that we had like an Excel file with $10,000, et cetera. And the 4000 that we put down, they were not enough. 
Some of it was to pay for the legal fees to start the company, but some of it was to start doing the idea to fundraise. And the idea to fundraise was doing courses on site, doing courses in specific places, in specific parts of the world. Christian was going to go to live in Argentina for a while because Christian was always a nomad and he loved to live everywhere in the world. Now he lives in San Francisco and he's like very San Franciscan. But back then he wanted to live everywhere and he wanted to live in Argentina. That was aligned with our idea that Argentina had a lot of money. Back then Argentina was really, really good. Nowadays, not so much, but they're still fine. So we wanted to do a course, an on-site course, a physical course. The course that we selected was search engine optimization because with our communities, we saw that that was a topic that was very interesting for Argentinians. So we used the money to buy flights for us. Well, Christian had an apartment, so I stayed in his apartment, basically. And also, we got a partnership with a university, the Catholic University of Buenos Aires, who lended us an auditorium to do the course. We were expecting 50 people to break even, basically, and to have some money to go and do the next course. And we got, like, 35, 36, so the course went broke. The course failed. Our first venture failed. We knew where we went wrong. We did this course on December. And on December, people just leave. On December in Argentina, they are not in Buenos Aires at all because they love to travel. We didn't have enough of an audience to actually pay for education, and that was a mistake. So we decided to just buy the bullet and accept the fact that we made a mistake and continue. We ended up going to Mexico. We asked for money. We landed some money to do it in Mexico. And in Mexico, we did a more technical course, HTML5, in a hotel, the Hotel Emporio. I will never forget that. We were expecting 50 people and 100 people sign up. So it was way better. We did the course. It was very positive. We paid our debts immediately. Always pay your debts as soon as you can. Then we reinvested the money into going to other places. That's how we ended up going to 20 cities in 12 countries between 2011 and 2012. Just so we keep the story straight, right after you opened the LLC, like how long was it before you went to Buenos Aires to do your first course together? Oh yeah, it took a while because I had some engagements. I was being a teacher for a university called the Piloto University of Colombia, like the pilot university, but they don't train pilots. It's mostly an architecture and engineering university in Colombia. And they wanted me to do some courses on Flash and on e-commerce and on web development. And because I was broke, I thought this is a good idea. I'm going to do these courses because they will pay me and then I will have enough money not to be super broke because right now my numbers are in negatives. And Christian had to organize his life so that he could move to Argentina. So it took us a while to do the course. And then on December, we did the course and it failed. And in the meantime, we were super excited about it. So it was an emotional hit, but we managed. In March, you were saying that year 2011 is when you did the LLC. So then it took about, what, nine months before you did your first course in Argentina? No, it was like four or five months. Four or five months? Okay. I thought it was March. Regardless, I mean, it took four or five months. So we have a general... No, because it was around July. Oh, it July. Was like, I don't really remember, but it was July or August when we established the LLC in Miami. Okay. And then December. We launched the course in November mm -hmm. and everything was ready in October. So October, everything was ready in terms of logistics. November, we started selling the course actively. And the first week of December, we did the course and it failed. And even back then, did you have a vision that you're going to do online education? Or did you just think, hey, we're going to do in-person education? Like, what was the thought process between doing it in person? And then also, you said Argentina was a little bit better financially. So that's the reason you picked that? Yeah. So the idea was we want to do these courses offline. 
to finance our online education platform. And we know that we can do it because we've done it before. Our communities, Crystalab and Photos del Web, they were customized software that we developed ourselves, each one on our own. In the case of Crystalab, my first company, I did everything from start to finish. It was at the very end of the company that I hired a developer. The people that I hired before were not developers at all. I developed everything. So I knew that it wasn't that hard to create something from scratch that could really impact what we were doing and could really create a new kind of online education experience. I underestimated a lot of things. But what I didn't underestimate was the teaching methodology because I was teaching a lot back then and I knew how people learned both online and offline. I almost had an idea of where things went wrong in education, especially in technical education. And Christian did too. We eventually found a document called Inquity Driven Project-Based Learning, which is methodology that Stanford uses to teach big groups. And we wanted to apply that first to our on-site courses, the courses that we were doing physical, and then to do the same to online. That required the development of some tools. But we always wanted to do both. I think that we wanted to do excellent education on-site and online. However, when we launched our first course, it was so successful for our perspective that we thought it makes no sense to keep doing courses on cities, to keep traveling. We should stop this and we should focus only on the online component. And that was several years later when you figured that out? Yeah, when we launched the platform. We launched the beta of the platform in January 2013. We were expecting, I remember, something like 100 students and we got like 500 students on our first go, which was incredible. And they kept paying and they were paying a lot. Well, a lot for our perspective because it was online and nobody knew us. It was between $50 to $95, depending on the course that we were charging. We were very close to making a million dollars that year. We were not quite there, but we were super close, like 780,000, I think, or 800,000 on early 2013. We knew that we were making way more money just doing the online courses than we were doing with the on-site courses. And we wanted to do it in scale because we were reaching places that we have never reached before, places where we would have normally never go to. And we could teach people in these places about what we wanted to teach them. But how about in the early years? Did you not think about just staying in America and doing the courses in the U.S.? At first, yeah. At first, we thought of just the prices were so crazy when you compare them to the U.S. And the thing is that the internet is the internet. If you do something in Colombia, it works everywhere else. It's not special just because you do it in a specific country. Well, maybe in terms of the teachers, yeah. When we went to Y Combinator, my co-founder decided to stay in the U.S. And he opened the office that we have right now in San Francisco, in California, with the idea of having people from the U.S. teaching the rest of the world about what they do. And we still do that to this day. But back then, it's just that the prices were so huge compared to the actual impact that, that it had that it just didn't make any sense for us. We didn't have to do a company in the U.S. bootstrap. It's extremely hard because the prices are just prohibitive. And today, I think it's even harder. Like hiring an engineer in the U.S. requires money out of the gate. It's extremely or a lot of equity. It's extremely expensive versus the kind of results that you get. Bootstrapping the company, it was definitely the right choice to do it from Latin America. Yes, I agree with you that I would think it'd be way more expensive, but I didn't know if the clients or the people, the customers, if you will, or the students, if they'd be willing to pay a lot more than the people in Argentina or Mexico, those first two spots that you went. That's true. But also in the U.S., back then, Coursera, edX were growing a lot. And the way that they launched is that everything is free. 
also there was another company that launched kind of in those days, Freehouse, and they were very close to our price point. However, when we did a small test, we wanted to see how to get US Hispanics back then. In the early years, it was extremely expensive to get people from the US. Like the customer acquisition cost was super high compared to the lifetime value. Today is a little bit better. And today we definitely have people in the US. But because we had the communities that we used to have, and these communities had an audience in Latin America and in Spain, it was a way more natural expansion and starting point to start in Latin America and Spain and eventually go to the US or everywhere else versus starting there. And I imagine that you feel comfortable there because that's kind of where your roots are, I imagine, right? I'm not sure if that had anything to do with it. Definitely, this is where my roots are. Definitely, it's a little bit more comfortable in terms of many things. But I don't think that I use any of that in the early days. Like, for example, I didn't hire our first employees out of the people that were closest to me. We hired them out of the best students and the best professionals that we could find that wanted to be part of the company. And we were remote at first. And eventually we opened an office. The first office that we opened was in Bogota, in Colombia. We were kind of reluctant into opening this office because I knew that Christian wanted to stay traveling the world. So, and I didn't want to take that away, but it ended up being the right thing. So you said you got accepted in the Y Combinator at the end of 2015, the, the winter 2015 batch. We were basically talking about end of 2011, 2012, 2013, like those early years before you went totally online. You're saying January 2013 is kind of when you decided to go online, correct? Yeah, we were accepted into winter 15. Winter 15 in Y Combinator runs from January to March of 2015. We applied twice. We applied to Y Combinator at the end of 2013 when we thought that we had something very important. And we applied at the end of 2014 and we were accepted back then. So we applied in October 2014 and then we started YC between January to March of 2015. We applied to Y Combinator because we thought and we still think, like I'm absolutely convinced of this, that they are the absolute best investment fund in the world. Well, before that, so were y'all just kind of breaking even and then we'll talk about Y Combinator, what it did for you and a little bit more about the company. But just those first couple of early years, were you making good enough money to live? I mean, where were you at financially, like personally? That's a very good question. Yeah. When the courses started to work, I had a conversation with Christian regarding how are we going to pay ourselves? So the first year, 2011, well, that was a failure. But in the second year, 2012, we started paying our the different people that we had. We started paying them, let's see, we had three people. We paid them something like $1,000 per month back then, which was really good for Latin America back then. And Christian and I started paying ourselves more or less the same. And sometimes, depending on what we needed, we gave ourselves bonuses depending on performance. That's not scalable at all. But it was what we needed to let go of our old companies. Because the thing is, Christian still had his former company. He didn't shut it down. He was totally committed to Platzi. Back then, Mejorando.la, but he didn't shut down his former company. So we just needed to have a structure where we felt okay shutting down our former companies or even merging them with Platzi as an entity. And I remember having that conversation in early 2013 with Christian. I took him to a very old restaurant, like the oldest restaurant that exists in Bogota in Colombia. And I told him, we have a shot at doing something really big. But to do that, we need to commit 100%. And I'm willing to close my former company. Are you willing to do the same? He decided to do it. And then we established a formal salary. For 2013, I think our salary was like $2,000 per month. And that stayed the same for a long time. I think up to 2015, when we went to Y Combinator. 
because when we went to live in Mountain View, we found out that a $2,000 per month salary doesn't really cut it out for Mountain View. So we had to do a thought increase. Fundrise is the future of real estate investing. See, with Fundrise, you can invest in million-dollar deals without writing million-dollar checks. And this level of real estate investing was previously only reserved for the wealthiest investors. Fundrise enables you to instantly access high-quality, high-potential real estate projects from the high-rises in D.C. to multifamily apartments in L.A. So getting high with Fundrise will actually be one of the best decisions you ever made. Oh, and by high, we mean you'll have access to highly vetted real estate projects that are managed by Fundrise's team of real estate professionals. With Fundrise, you now have the benefit of investing in real estate's consistent cash flow and long-term appreciation without all the headaches that come with managing a property yourself. They make it easy to inspect every project in your portfolio and will keep you updated on each project's progress in real time. So give the future of real estate investing a try today. Go to Fundrise.com slash millionaire. That's Fundrise, F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com forward slash millionaire to have your first three months of fees waived. And that link is available in your episode notes below. And don't forget, by clicking the link in our episode notes, you help me and my team. Thank you for supporting the show by checking out our advertisers so they can help financially support our podcast. Well, tell us about that conversation, because this seems like a difficult conversation to have with the co-founder. Oh, yeah. Even from his perspective, how you merge that with your company. So like, how do you talk about this and how would you suggest that we do it if we have a co-founder who has a separate company that might be not 100% similar, but somewhat similar. And you have to tell him, hey, you need to commit 100%. Not that he wasn't like all the way committed, you felt, but you felt like if he could close that down or merge it with your company, that you would both be better off. Yeah. When I did that, I remember being kind of scared. But I remember rehearsing a lot this conversation. Back then, I wasn't the CEO, by the way. When the company started, Christian was the CEO. I think that I was kind of a CTO, CMO type of person because Christian was the one that established the company, that knew how the P&L worked, the cash flow and everything else. He planned the financials, he planned everything else. But I was planning the product. I was planning the courses. I was the teacher for 90% of the courses that we did. I did a lot, but he also did the other things. I remember that that was when we flipped. We flipped when I told him we need to commit to this 100% and we need to do this and I have this idea. So I think that mentally I approached Christian like I will approach an investor with a pitch, an ambition, an expected outcome out of that interview. These are all the scenarios that I see and this is where I want the company to be. And in my mind, I had like plans B, C, D, E of what will go wrong depending on if Christian says no, etc. Thankfully, Christian said yes to everything. He was in total agreement. He saw that what I said made sense. He really wanted to commit. The only thing that he didn't want to give up was the freedom that he had of traveling and going around the world. Because again, he has always been this nomad. I assured him that we could make that happen. But what I wanted was an absolute focus on making this thing in particular happen, which was focusing into Platzi, focusing into making the online courses focusing into creating the best product team and the best marketing team back then to make the company grow and to make more courses, blah, blah, blah. Thankfully, I didn't need to use my plan B or plan C. I'm trying to remember what my plan B was. I think that my plan B was to increase my equity and decrease his equity, but I didn't need to go there. And I think that the plan C was just to do it on my own, but I never thought that I was going to need to use that. 
We've had disagreements, definitely. I think that disagreements are absolutely natural with a co-founder. But I see co-founders not like friends, more like brothers, because you are not really your brother's or sister's friend, necessarily. Some people are, but I know that I'm not in the case of my brother. However, you know that you have each other's backs and that you can trust each other often, commonly. And I think that that's a very accurate way of explaining how these co-founder relationships work. We have different incentives, different alignment of visions and of ideas. However, we share a common set of values and we share total trust. And it's because of that, that conversation went a little bit better. And that's a great way to look about it. I never thought about that because they always say like marriage partner and whatnot. And yeah. You usually love whoever you're married to a little bit more versus a brother, you know. Definitely. I 100% agree with you. I think a lot of people can understand that perspective. I don't have to talk to him all the time, but hopefully most people can trust their brother or sister or whoever, a family member. So it sounds like, yeah, obviously that conversation went well. You got into Y Combinator. We can talk about before and after if you want, or I don't know at what point the Stripe story comes into play, if you want to discuss it. It was right at the start. Yeah, tell us about right about Stripe in the beginning then. So this was started because of the courses, the physical courses. It's very hard to get paid. In Latin America, it's extremely hard. In Latin America, only 5% of people have credit cards. While if you compare that to the US or Europe, it's 80%, 90%, depending on where you go. More importantly, only 50% of people have a bank account. The rest just keep their money under the mattress or live day by day with whatever they pay them. That's the case, for example, for Uber in Latin America. Once Uber pays an Uber driver in Latin America, the Uber driver will get the money out of the bank account immediately. The moment the money gets to the bank, that's the moment where they get the money out in cash immediately. And they live day by day. There's no such thing as financial planning or even financial responsibility. And it's a huge challenge for the region. As we were growing, we wanted to go to more countries, but we didn't have a financial structure in each one of these countries. And it's not like we just call up in a bank account in Argentina or Chile or Peru and get paid through there. So we started using local partners, people that already had companies. And for a fee, they would be in charge of charging and they will give us the money. But this was not scalable at all. And it was a huge source of frustration if the partners that we chose were not that financial responsible or had issues or Sometimes we didn't have all the money immediately because they use it for something else and they didn't realize it, things like that. We wanted control. And we saw that certain debit cards worked online only with Stripe. We wanted to use Stripe. We wanted to be able to charge on the website without having to worry about charging at the very end. Because the other thing is that for some of our courses, something like 60 to 70% of our students arrived with money in hand the first day of class, in the early hours of the class. That was another source of frustration because you couldn't really predict how big the classroom should be, the logistics, the food, stuff like that. So we wanted to use Stripe, but Stripe only works for U.S. companies. So we had to fake to be a U.S. company. And it's part of the reason why we created this structure in Miami. We had to pretend that our, not pretend because that sounds bad. We had to establish that we were a U.S. company that had Latin American customers, even though we didn't have anything in the U.S. at all besides the financial structure. So we moved the whole operation to the U.S. and we made the few companies that we had in Latin America, which was a Colombian and a Mexican company, a subsidiary of those, of the U.S. company in Miami. It was a Miami Inc., I think. It wasn't that easy. Like, I remember that no lawyer in Colombia knew how to do that. 
and we went to a lot of lawyers and they really didn't understand what we wanted to do. At the end, the Chamber of Commerce, which is like nonprofit, they don't charge anything. The lawyers of the Chamber of Commerce in Bogota knew how to do that. And it's basically the US company acquires the Colombian company. That's it. That's the whole operation. Now I know. And it was, I think that it was like $50 versus like quotes of $5,000 from super prestigious lawyers that didn't know how to do it. Because it's not common that a US company acquires a Colombian company. And that's how we established the subsidiaries. I remember that when we went to Y Combinator, we met Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe. And he was very impressed on what we had to do to be able to charge. And we talk a lot about how having access to an international way of charging will change emerging countries. From that conversation, Stripe Atlas came out. It came. Stripe Atlas is designed to allow people to create a Delaware C Corp outside of the US. So if you are anywhere in the world, you can open an iOS company through Stripe Atlas and then use Stripe if you want. If you go to Stripe Atlas and you look for the promotional video that they used to launch Stripe Atlas, it's basically Christian, my co-founder, explaining this very same story with a little bit more detail. And that was one of the early things that we had to do to actually work. Latin America is super weird in terms of how money works, but it's a very interesting market. We have twice the GDP per capita of places like India, but to India, India receives three times more venture capital than Latin America. Makes no sense. The only reason for that is the single market, the easy way to get paid. So I think that things like Stripe Atlas and the example that we're making by creating these international companies from scratch will help a lot the region into having more tech startups. So everything worked out perfectly as far as when you established with Stripe and when you set up that American company. That was a game changer for y'all, basically, as far as getting paid. Perfectly is an overstatement. I mean, it worked really well. Some of the issues that we had were very hard to foresee. For example, we started seeing a weird behavior in certain countries where they will do a lot of chargebacks. And chargebacks are really bad because if you go above certain percentage, they will cancel your merchant account. And that is horrible. And we didn't really know why that was happening. So we started researching and we found out that there was a group of hackers in Peru and a group of hackers in Brazil that were using our payment processor as a way to test credit cards that they were stealing really, really, really fast. So if the credit card was able to acquire a Platinum subscription, they will use it for something else, like buying TVs or stuff like that, which is what you normally do when you steal a credit card. So we had to establish a lot of parameters to do fraud detection. And that's just something that you don't think when you're thinking about this. A counterintuitive thing is that if you charge a lot, if you charge more money, you get less fraud. When we did a, a small experiment a couple of years ago, where only for 36 hours, instead of charging $34, which is what we charge for our monthly subscription, we charge $9. And the result was a huge increase in fraud. We also saw a huge increase in acquisition and everything else, but the increase in fraud was overwhelming, only because we went from charging $34 to 9 so that's some of the counterintuitive things that you don't think about when you start doing online payments. Those are great tips. And just so everyone understands, it was called Stripe Atlas, A-T-L-A-S. So if someone else is in your shoes today, basically that's what you would suggest they do if they're trying to open up a company and get paid online in South America or anywhere else? Yes. Stripe Atlas is the easy way of the hard thing that we did. 
Right. Yeah. So they created it just because they realized how many hoops that y'all had to jump through in order to make this thing happen. Exactly. So was Y Combinator one of those game changers for y'all as well? After you went to Y Combinator, I'm trying to pick out the last few moments of turning your company into what were things that really helped y'all expand? Y Combinator was definitely one of those moments. Y Combinator was unbelievable. I think that Y Combinator is the gateway to Silicon Valley. I went to Silicon Valley several times before Y Combinator because of my former company, Google used to invite me every year to the Google I.O. So I went every year since the very first Google I.O. I think that I stopped going in 2016 or no, in 2015, I stopped going to Google I.O. But before that, I went to each one of them and I kind of understood what Silicon Valley was and I did the tours and everything else, the touristic thing, but I really didn't got it. I didn't really process in my mind what Silicon Valley meant and how it worked until I went to YC. Y Combinator is just a fast track of all the things regarding the tech industry. The way that they describe it internally, I think that it's very appropriate, which is that Y Combinator is a railgun pointing your company to demo day and to the 500 best investors of Silicon Valley, which is normally how it works. It's just three months. In those three months, 90% of the time, you're working on making your company better and growing faster and being way better company. And then the last 10% of the time, you focus on polishing your story so that you can present the top 500 investors in Silicon Valley. However, Y Combinator continues after the batch. It's three months of total immersion, but you can still ask for advice and ask for ideas into to YC partners and advisors. I've worked with a lot of organizations in Silicon Valley, either as an advisor or as receiving advice and getting money, etc. And nothing compares to YC. YC is just unique in the way that they are structured. I think that because the partners are like a flag structure instead of a hierarchical structure, all of them are extremely empowered to help the rest of the founders however they can. YC is just incredible. And we were doing more than a million dollars when we applied to YC for the second time. And so getting $120,000 for 7% from just a financial perspective wasn't that attractive. But we never thought of YC as money. We never thought of YC as a way to get investment. We thought of YC as something different, and we definitely got that. What were some of the major changes that they suggested that you made with your company? Because at least you were still profitable, right? And going into it, I mean, a lot of the companies, it sounds like aren't, or maybe they're just ideas versus y'all were a little different because one, you're coming from Latin America, and two, you're actually profitable right now. When you got advice from advisors on your company. What were they suggesting that you change or do to make your company a little bit better? Yeah. The first thing is, I think that when we entered Y Combinator, we had three different metrics that define our success and our growth. That was a mistake. You should only have one metric. You can have 11 metrics, a thousand metrics if you want, but the growth metric of your company should be a single one. And you should focus obsessively on that metric. We didn't have that when we went to YC. We had three metrics and we focus sometimes in one, sometimes in the other, but we never focus on just a single metric of success. We did after YC, during YC actually, and that was really good. Also, they were the ones that suggested us to transform the company from Miami and a Florida corporation into a Delaware C-Corp. That was also the right thing to do because otherwise raising money is a pain in the ass. You should absolutely have a Delaware C-Corp if you want to raise money from institutional investors, do a seed round or at a series A or whatever. The other thing is that they advise us to raise money, which is counterintuitive because we were profitable. And it was also counterintuitive for them because we were really like, we don't really need this. We don't really need to raise money. Actually, I'm wondering if we should participate in the model at all. And that was very confusing to them. 
part of the reason why we're profitable and part of the reason why we didn't need money is because we operated in Latin America, where rent is cheaper, salaries are cheaper, fixed costs are cheaper. Companies in the U.S. have way higher fixed costs and recurrent costs. So it's natural for them to need to raise. We didn't really need to. But I remember talking with Jessica Livingston, and she told me something that is absolutely true, sounds obvious, but when you're profitable, you don't think about it. She told me, companies die when they run out of money. They don't die if you die. If my co-founder dies or I die, the company won't die. I mean, it's going to be super sad. I'm sure of it. But I hope that they do the smart thing and they build like the Freddy Vega Foundation for blah, blah, blah. And they use my dad as a PR stunt and then they continue growing. I hope. I'm sure that they will. Well, now I they will because they listen to the podcast. So they'll, they'll never know what to do. <laughs> yeah. If my co-founder dies, I'm going to be sad for a long time. And I'm totally doing the foundation thing and the PR thing. But the company won't die if we die. The company only dies when it runs out of money. Obvious as it is, you don't think about it when you're profitable because you don't think that bad things will happen to you. It just so happens that we raise money, by the way. We raise money after Y Combinator. We raised $2.2 million right after YC. And in 2015, this was a lot of money. Nowadays, seed rounds are stupidly crazy and $2 million is not that special. Back then it was. But in 2016, Latin America had a massive currency crash. For example, the Mexican peso used to be $1, 10 Mexican pesos. And in less than a month, it was $1, 20 Mexican pesos. The same happened with the Colombian peso, with Argentina, with the Peruvian sol, in Republica Dominicana, in Guatemala, everywhere. You saw this happening everywhere. What it meant for us is that our average revenue per account monthly used to be $29. And it went in three months from 29 to 19 because we were charging in local currencies, but our accounting was in US dollars. That was one of the first times that we stopped being profitable. And we even saw the possibility of dying because suddenly growth in terms of monthly current revenue was negative. Thankfully, we buy the bullet and we decided to stay unprofitable, basically financing the crash for our students so that it was transparent to them. We didn't raise prices or anything like that. And we kept doing it with local currencies for several months with the money that we had in the bank. This was expensive at first, but it was the right thing to do because we never stopped growing in terms of subscribers. And we would have never been able to do that without the money that we raised out of YC. And YC helped us a lot back then. I remember that I was super depressed because of that happening. I didn't know what we were going to do. And I thought of raising a bridge round. And I met with Michael Seibel, who's now the president of Y Combinator. And he told me, you can spend the next three months raising a bridge round and probably getting not the best terms. He mentioned it in a different way. But he said, not the best terms for the fundraising or just the same terms, but you will sacrifice more equity of your company. Or you can use the next three months to use this crisis to grow faster and to become profitable again. And I stopped raising the round, we focus on being profitable, and it was the right thing to do. If we're looking at risk of your business, right? That's one risk that you probably maybe didn't think about. And it really stinks because it's nothing that you did. This currency crash, and then you're locked in, or these students or whatever prices you had were based on the currency there. But you're saying yeah. by keeping it at that same rate, everyone's going to value your course. They're going to be like, oh, I can afford this course now at least. But I mean, it was hurting you financially big time at that point in time. But you're saying it helped you grow a good amount. I mean, do you remember what type of growth you experienced at least from that point in time? 
We didn't grow a lot because we had to also rein in our marketing budget. Customer acquisition costs didn't go down as much as the local currencies. That was an interesting thing that I wasn't expecting. Just people kept spending, which is weird. Also, most companies that are international, when a local currency crash happens, it's beneficial to them because they have US dollars. So it's cheaper for them to acquire. In our case, because we were getting money in their local currency, we had less US dollars. So it was a little bit harder for us to invest. What we definitely did was keeping the prices as they were, not increasing the prices and communicating strongly to our students, this is happening, but we are the ones biting the bullet for you. So just keep studying and don't cancel the subscription and we're going to be fine. And actually we saw a decrease in cancellation. When the crash started, we saw a huge increase. A lot of people started canceling the subscription because when these fluctuations of US dollars start to happen, people feel out of anxiety about the control of their finances because they don't know how much they're going to be spending next year, next month, next week. And a lot of people in the countries where we operate don't have a lot of financial discipline. As I mentioned before, they live paycheck by paycheck, sometimes even before that. So we really needed to communicate that. A positive thing that came out of this is that we ended up creating a personal finance course. And the students that take our personal finance course churn less, I think, because they organize their spending better. So at least you're pulling out some of the positives out of something that was negative at the time. And at least you made it through it because maybe you wouldn't have had that advice if you weren't part of Y Combinator, right? Definitely. I think that we would had access to good advice. We're also part of an organization called Endeavor Network, which is a nonprofit organization worldwide that promotes high impact entrepreneurship in developing markets. And they have pretty good advice. Actually, different advice. Y Combinator, for example, doesn't have a lot of advice on how to operate in the markets that we operate, Latin America, Spain, etc. They know about the US, they know about Silicon Valley, and they know about startups and technology, other things. But they don't necessarily know about the weird things that can happen in emerging markets. Endeavor does. So through Endeavor, we have gotten really good advice regarding that. But Y Combinator is just extremely precise. They are very focused on helping you the best way they can, and they know very well where to push. Having that advice and being able to get all this money to sustain you during that time, it obviously helped you stay where you are today, because it sounds like you might not be there if you didn't go to Y Combinator. We will be in a different place. That's absolutely true. We will not have been able to raise the kind of rounds that we have raised without YC. That's definitely true. We will have a different growth path. Not sure if a better or a worse one, but a different growth path, probably a little bit worse without Y Combinator, definitely. Tell us about, as you get out, that's middle 2015 or so, why don't we kind of fast forward over the last couple of years of growth and anything else that the people listening can learn from as part of your story? I think that the biggest lesson that we have always seen as a truth since we started and that we've seen in the past couple of years is the importance of having a diverse market. We don't target one city or one country. We target everywhere in the world that speaks Spanish and we're expanding into Portuguese and we're expanding into English. And because we are everywhere, we are able to hedge the issues that normally will happen in one of these markets. For example, at the start of this year, Argentina was one of our best markets. It was the number three in terms of the places we're getting the most amount of students. And it dropped to number seven in the span of the last three months because there was a huge economical downturn in Argentina due to reasons that nobody really understands because they're doing everything by the book now. The former administration did some shady stuff, but this administration 
in terms of the currency and the international commerce and everything else, seem to have done everything by the book and it didn't work anyway. It still affected heavily the situation in Argentina. But we don't depend on Argentina. We had students in Mexico. We have U.S. Hispanics in the U.S. We have students in Spain, in Colombia, in Chile, in Peru. So one market just helped the other. Something else that we found, Peru, as an example, is a market with a lot of growth, probably the biggest amount of growth in South America. But also they have the biggest amount of fraud, the biggest amount of chargebacks, the lowest lifetime value, the biggest amount of complaints. So we switched the business model a little bit for them. In Peru, we only sell the annual subscription instead of the monthly subscription, because it's the only way that we can justify the level of commitment that we need to keep the market happy. And that has worked very well for us. And making these small experiments in isolated markets is something that we only can do because we thought of the company as global from the beginning. I think that a lot of founders and a lot of entrepreneurs try to do it small at first, try to do it for their cities, for their neighborhoods, for their state, for their country. And depending on the country, like the U.S. in particular, this could be absolutely fine, but it's the internet. You can do something and make it global from day zero if you want. You just need to think about how you're going to do it. That has a lot of value that is really invisible unless you know what you're doing. The value of being 100% global from the beginning. And that's kind of cool and smart of you to use those like isolated countries to do these little experiments on, right? Yeah. And my thought process, how are you expanding into one of these countries? Are you like on your wall? Are you targeting? Are you like, let's target this next country, whether it was Peru or it sounds like you kind of start off with Argentina, Mexico, but how do you decide when you're going to go target a market and what do you do to kind of grow it and get the word out about your company, Platzi? Sure. So we do the normal things. We have Facebook ads, Google AdWords, everything else. But paid acquisition is only half of our acquisition. The other half is inbound acquisition, things that we don't pay someone to get students out of it. So the biggest acquisition channel that we have right now is search engine optimization basically people finding us through Google. And I think that many companies underestimate the incredible power of search engine optimization and they don't invest enough in making that channel grow. Search engine optimization, even in 2018, is still extremely good. We also have a YouTube channel. It's very popular. It has like 60 million views. Wow. YouTube.com slash Platzi, where we do the very early stage of each one of the classes of each one of the courses. So people get enough context to go to the courses, to pay for them, and to continue their education. We do conferences, and this is probably one of the biggest things that we do when we want to target a specific market. We do a big event every year, because the biggest market that we have is Mexico. We almost always do it in Mexico, Platicomp. Platicomp in Mexico had an audience between the people that went, the people that saw it online, of like 60,000 people, 2,000 people attending on-site, and the rest seeing it online. And we're going to do it again in Colombia because we're seeing Colombia growing a lot this year in November 10th. So in like 20 days from recording time, we're going to be having a platicum in Bogota, Colombia, November 10th. And we sometimes do these events online as well. And we try to get more teachers from a specific country to grow in that specific market because the teachers bring their own audience with them when we do these things. So there are many ways. Sometimes we do promotions that only apply to a specific country. Sometimes what we do is that we launch a new currency. So if I want to launch in Guatemala, I launch Platzi in Quetzales, which is their currency. And that sometimes helps. Not always, by the way. In Europe, when we launched in euros, they hated it. So we went back to dollars. But we found out it's because they perceive things in dollars as cheaper than in euros. 
And where was that? Were you doing the euros versus the USD? Yeah. Back then we were charging $29. So we started charging 25 euros and people hated it, even though it was the same amount. Right, right. They just, no, I wanted in dollars because mentally they perceive dollars as cheaper, even if the number is higher. Now you know that you can just charge a little bit higher using USD, huh? We have done that. So now we charge 34 US dollars. No complaint. So right now, are you just in South America or is there any European countries? What's your plan for expansion going forward? Yeah, we have 700,000 students all around the world. We have a lot of students in Spain. So I'm opening an office in Madrid this year. Spain is a very interesting market. It's not that big. It's 45 million people. But of those 45 million, more than 90% have credit cards. And more than 50% have a college education. So it's a very educated audience with a lot of acquisition power. And the competitors that we have there are mostly the U.S. companies. This happens in Brazil as well. The local offerings in online education for the tech skills that we target are not as strong as we are. It's just that we're not as well known because we don't focus on them. We normally focus in Hispanic Latin America. So doing Spain and doing Brazil is something that we want to do before the end of the year. We already have content that we're actively developing. In Spain, thankfully, the content that we already have works. We just have to have more content from Spaniards than content from Latin Americans. Also, there's this small perception that if the content comes from the U.S. or from Spain, is of a higher quality than if it comes from Latin America in a Spaniard line. But that's just biases that you cannot do anything about. So you just work around them. Same thing with the dollar versus the euro. Like you're saying, even though the ultimate cost was the same, yeah, just a perception. And it's smart for you to understand that perception that people have of it. Yeah. In Brazil, something like that happens. For example, we did an experiment where we launched a course that we did in Spanish with Portuguese subtitles and a course that we did in English with Portuguese subtitles. They hated the Spanish course, <laughs> but they were absolutely okay with the English course. But it's the same thing. It's the course with subtitles. It's just perception and a little bit of racism. But you cannot fight against that in a country-wide perspective. You just work around it. So it sounds like the two keys kind of for your growth have been the SEO and the YouTube channel. Yeah, and the community. I think that the community is the biggest part of it. We do a lot for the community. We do the conferences, the conference and the events to talk to the community. If someone is a very good student with a high rank inside Platzi or has been with us for a long time, we give them VIP seats at the conference. Sometimes we give them slots to do like small talks, ignites inside the conference. We just try to do our best to promote and award our best students. And I think that helping your early adopters and giving them whatever recognition you can get them is key because they are the ones that love your product and that will be your champions to grow your audience. If you want to touch on your company a little bit more, so if someone's listening, obviously they need to know English, but we've got a kind of a worldwide audience and maybe people who are speaking Spanish or Portuguese who want to learn more about your platform, where should they go just to learn more and see if they would be interested in taking some courses with you? Of course. So Platz is an online education company. We have courses in English. We have a course on how to start a startup from Sam Alman, the president of Y Combinator. We have a course on Sales.js, which is one of the most popular JavaScript frameworks in the world from the creator of Sales.js, Mike McNeil. And these are courses in English. We have a course on how to do mobile growth marketing with the head of growth at Waze, Diane Eisner. Everything is in courses.platzi.com. It's P-L-A-T-Z-I.com. We also have courses in English, and I'm sorry, in Spanish and in Portuguese. 
In total, all around, we have something close to 250 courses to this day, and we create 20 new courses each month. We teach everything regarding the digital economy. Half of our content is on programming, the other half is on design, marketing, finance, entrepreneurship, audio and video production, anything you need to create a digital product, we have a course on it. And you can just check it out at Platzi.com. And just so we got to feel again one more time as far as how many people have come through Platzi, it is kind of unbelievable because at first when I was reaching out, we were talking, I didn't think it was that big of a company. Just tell us about like how many students you've had come through and like completion rate and anything else that we could get a good idea of like how you're able to grow to this size. <laughs> yes, of course. So we have 700,000 students all around the world that have gone through Platzi. Just to be fair, most of them don't pay. Most of them check our free courses, but a sizable amount of them pay. We have a 250 courses, as I mentioned before. We charge monthly or a yearly subscription. We charge $34 per month or $2.99 per year to access everything in Spanish. In English and in Portuguese, we charge $9 per course, and we try to have that kind of price point. Our idea is that we want people to be able to learn with Platzi paying less than $1 per day, because that way we can really impact more people. In Latin America and in emerging markets, our mission is to change the economies of these countries. We want to pivot the composition of these economies from economies that are based on agriculture, manufacture, and natural resources into economies that actually leverage the human talent that exists in these nations. We think that the countries that are going to win in this next industrial revolution that we're living right now are the countries that are going to have the most amount of talent. And the beauty of the digital economy is that to have that kind of talent, you don't really need to invest in trains and highways and airports and the all infrastructure that you still need to build, by the way. It's not like you can skip it. But a country with people motivated enough to learn with just a stable internet connection and a laptop will be able to compete at an international level with anybody else. What we want to be is the catalyst to make that happen. What we want to be at Platzi is the fastest way to make that possible. And in terms of outcomes, once a student completes one year at Platzi, once they, that's what we call completing a career, which is like a set of courses. After they spend that time, a year later, we will see an increase of that student between 54% to 260% in their average income. And 20% of them end up creating companies. So far, we know of 10 companies created from our students that provide more than 10 jobs, 10 very high quality jobs. And three of them have raised more than $1 million in venture capital. So what we're doing at Platzi is trying to be that, the catalyst that will make our countries able to pivot into digital economies and compete with tech services and with the most amount of talent and technology in, for the world. That's awesome. What's your vision for the future of like your company? I and mean, what do you have for goals as far as for Platzi and you personally? Well, that mission is pretty hard to achieve. So I think <laughs> that I'm going to stick with that for a little while. Right now, the biggest thing that we want to achieve is to complete our expansion into Brazil and into Spain. The students that we have in the U.S. are still growing and they're growing organically. And for now, maybe that's good enough. For now, it's not clear that we want to compete in that market because the Brazilian market, the Latin American market and the Spanish market is really big, like extremely big. Last year in Latin America, 1.5 million jobs in technology remained vacant. Nobody applied because they didn't have enough skills to apply for those kind of jobs. 
And at the same time, an outsourcing explosion is starting to happen because in LATAM, we have the same time zone that the U.S. has. And at the same time, we're seeing more and more money from venture capital being invested in international companies. Most of it is going to China, but a lot of it is starting to come to Latin America and to Spain. Cabify is a new billion-dollar company in Spain that is growing. The same with Globo. In Latin America, we have Corner Shop, we have Rappi, we have Green. Hopefully, we will be one of them. When we have many, many more companies that are growing and getting more and more venture capital than before, which means that the hunger for talent will just increase. And as long as we remain true to our objective of being very effective online education and doing whatever we can to provide effective skills on the kind of education that actually changes your career, I think that we have a shot of being able to provide that talent for the rest of the world. Well, thank you for doing the interview and taking the time to tell us a little bit about your company and your story. I think there's some good stuff that people can learn from. And then obviously, if they want to learn more, and especially if they're in those kind of Latin American countries to check out your courses, and hopefully they can help their career by doing that as well. Thank you for taking the time, Freddie. Austin, thank you very much for inviting me. And if anybody has a question that I can help with, they can also send me a tweet. My Twitter account is super easy. It's like Freddie from Freddie Mercury with an R at the end. So F-R-E-D-D-I. E-R, Frevier, and I will be happy to answer. All right. Well, thank you again for doing the interview. Thank you, Austin. If you're looking for other tech-based interviews, you consider episode 60 with Cam Duty, episode 55 with Thorne Rodriguez, or episode 50 with Max and Pedro from Winding Tree. This awesome podcast is now approved by Spotify. So if you'd rather tune into our episodes via the Spotify app, then just go ahead and search for Millionaire Interviews.